0: Listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use disorders, resources to assist individuals with an SUD and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. We are bringing you another episode full of conversations with some of our organizational stakeholders. This month, we get to hear from Jennifer of Meaningful Minds United, Anne-Marie of Texas Tech, and Rebecca of Springs Recovery Connection. Stay tuned for stories from the field. And without further ado, let's get talking. Well, I'm here with Jennifer Randall Thorpe um, of Meaningful Minds United, one of the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence's organizational stakeholders. Jennifer, welcome. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, Before we get into more about Meaningful Minds United and what they do, do you want to share a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, certainly. My name is Jennifer Randall-Thorpe. I'm a 58-year-old individual with lived experience. I was diagnosed in 1999 with bipolar disorder, narcolepsy, and Other titles that I I don't like to uh, uh, talk about because I believe that I am victorious and not a victim. Uh, But uh, I have three beautiful daughters and eight grandchildren. And uh, I have been in uh, behavioral health since 1987. I uh, graduated from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette in applied sciences. I actually studied nursing, but somehow was uh, maneuvered over into education, then into behavioral health concurrently, if you will.
0: <laughs> sure. The universe has kind of a funny way of redirecting our paths,
1: huh? (laughs) Isn't that something? You know, I believe that God orders our footsteps. And he definitely ordered me into this field because I was married to uh, an individual who had a drug addiction. And uh, it it, it was one that took me for a loop. And uh, I finally got out of that marriage myself. I did the divorce myself and um, I had three beautiful girls from that, two beautiful girls from that marriage. And then I ended up marrying another individual with the same drug habit. So I, I have a feeling that God had said to me, You're not finished with this test. So I'm going <laughs> to give you the test all over again and we'll see how you handle it this time. So uh, here we are, and I- I'm back in, in the present and living my best life.
0: That's always good to hear. I love when someone can, when anyone can, is able to say that. And we are certainly grateful that you're here. Well, Jennifer, would you like to talk a little bit now? Thank you for sharing all of that. By the way, um, would you like to share a little bit about Meaningful Minds United?
1: Well, certainly. Uh, for Minds United started out as for Minds of Louisiana Incorporated and uh, was an organization that was put together by several peers that met in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and decided that there needed to be a peer-run organization here in the state of Louisiana. And that was back in 2005. And so those peers organized and Uh, solidified this Meaningful Minds of Louisiana. There were several chapters throughout uh, the state of Louisiana. As you know, we're parishes and not counties. So every parish, uh, every other parish had a chapter of Meaningful Minds and they functioned the same as the the base chapter here in Lafayette. Uh, The organization was led by a wonderful woman, Wonderful moment of God, uh, Carol Glover, who has now transitioned. Uh, but I had the privilege and the honor of working with Carol during mm-hmm. uh, her tenure as the president and CEO of Meaningful Minds of Louisiana. And I learned a lot. Uh, we frequented the jails, we frequented uh, homeless habitats, and uh, you know, for a while, I, I wondered how she could just walk up to a homeless person and, and just chit chat like that. And uh, I learned that uh, they were just another person, another person just like you or I. It just happened that they lived in a different area, that had different habits. It was a totally different culture. And uh, very much like a culture I just discovered this weekend called the freight culture. Those are the individuals that frequent the, the, the freight cars and spray paint them. I have another okay. theory about that. I'll tell you about it later. But this yeah. the homeless culture uh, in itself uh, was an interesting one because they met us at our office. Some of them lived underneath the driveway where we drove in every morning to do business for many from in Louisiana. After a while, I think things got a little hectic and we had to ask them to find place elsewhere. But I learned how to work with the homeless by by working closely with Carol. And it was a change of mindset, you know. uh, Mm -hmm. And a little bit out of my comfort zone, but soon to become a priority for me, working with the homeless. Then cool. uh, that was in uh, back in 2011, when I served as the executive administrative assistant of the organization and very happily so because I was introduced to a lot of things. I met a lot of influential people. I took notes, I I, I, I collaborated, I I gave ideas, I gave my contribution. We even put on a uh, conference, a statewide conference at one of the local hotels here in Lafayette where all of our chapters gathered together and we had uh, the guest speaker was Kevin Hines, okay. and we also had uh, Daniel Fisher of the National Empowerment Center, and that's where I uh, I met Daniel and for the first time, and we became friends. Um, fast forward in 2020, I was a foster grandparent with the MariCorps. It was in March of 2020 that we were sent home. I can recall one of the the gardeners running down the hallways of schools and saying, we're going home. It's a pandemic. We're going home. And he just pranced around with his socks, knee high socks that had uh, a picture of a marijuana leaf on them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, that kid really set in motion something transformational for me. I was sent home, no assignment, no indication of when I would ever return to the classroom that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, found myself saying, what am I going to do now? And then mm-hmm. I thought about Meaningful Minds of Louisiana. I said, I wonder what they're doing right now. Mm-hmm. So I went on the internet and found the past president, who was Diane Terrio, and gave her a call. And she said to me, she said, Jennifer, if you want Meaningful Minds, you can have it. Wow. And I Really? She said, but I have to tell you, I dismantled it. I said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, that's okay. I said, I'll just get it back up, running with the state and everything. But when she said dismantled, she mean dismantled everything. She had Mm -hmm. even uh, terminated the 501c3. So when I got the organization back, not only did I have to get it in right standing, with the state of Louisiana, I had to get it back in right standing with the Internal Revenue Service, which comes with a a price, a hefty price. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I thank God for the National Empowerment Center that aided me in this endeavor. And uh, I was able to get everything back up and running. Unfortunately, (laughs) when I initially filed the paperwork, because I was new to this, not say I didn't know what I was doing, but I made a a boo-boo. My boo-boo was that instead of declaring it as a nonprofit, I declared it as a public charity, Mm. another fee. (laughs) But nevertheless, easy to correct and you had to wait the time that it took for them to actually do all that. But I got that letter one day and it was a beautiful sunshiny day and the sun was Mm -hmm. shining on the outside as well as on the inside. And I was just happy to see that meaningful minds of Louisiana was now a 501 C3. And as we endeavor to develop our plan, our strategic plan, our goals for the year. We became involved nationally with with countries such as Canada, Germany, the UK, Canada, and even uh, Venezuela. That's and really we, impressive. Yeah, a national organization just because of the work that we were doing with emotional CPR. And mm-hmm. once we made those connections, the connections stuck. So mm-hmm. we decided that we would rebrand Meaningful Minds of Louisiana because we had actually expanded our territory. Uh, the prayer Jabez says to enlarge my territory. And so... He did just that. And now we're in all those countries that I previously mentioned, proudly serving the peers and families of individuals with lived experience. Now I've talked enough, Shannon. Did you have anything (laughs) you'd like to ask me?
0: Yeah, um, you've said a lot of really incredible things that sparked a few different questions. I think one, if we could back up a little bit, can you share with me a little bit more about what maybe the mission of Meaningful Minds United or what their primary services they provide, what that looks
1: like? Certainly, yes, yes. The, the mission of Meaningful Minds is to provide direct peer support, advocacy, education, and awareness programs. To individuals and their families who have lived experience, and uh, what was the other the other question? No, th-
0: no, that's a perfect answer. When you say lived experience, do you primarily mean lived experience with substance use challenges, or do you also work with folks with mental health challenges?
1: primarily with individuals with mental health challenges, but we also work with individuals with substance use challenges. We have several programs in place that we use to uh, assist individuals with lived experience. One of them is called Target Health, uh, Mm -hmm. appropriated by Health of America or their they've rebranded as well. It used to be Mental Health of Greater Baton Rouge, but they've rebranded. So I think it's Louisiana Mental Health of America, something like that. Don't quote me on that. And uh, then we have um, uh, another program called uh, Seeking Safety. Mm-hmm. That was uh, appropriated by uh, a woman in, in Louisiana. And uh, two of us are trainers in that program. then we have emotional CPR, which is appropriated by the National Empowerment Center. And we use primarily those three programs, but we have our own branded mm-hmm. program. It's uh, the... It, it, The title escapes me at the moment, but it has to do with the eight dimensions of wellness. Mm -hmm. And it's based on the eight dimensions of wellness and um, also with, um, well, something we're preparing for NAMICON, uh, it it deals with... um, I I, I I I went blank there. Just give me a second. <laughs> You're good. No rush. Yeah, um, that that program, uh, it's the social determinants of health. Gotcha. It... The social determinants of health is that program. Uh, and the okay. influence on peer support and the the and the influence that peer support has on the social determinants of health.
0: So, so needed in our country.
1: When you think about it, um, the social determinants of health are for everybody, not just for peers, Uh they're for the world, you know, and I think if the world could get a grasp or get a hold of the idea behind the social determinants of health being the neighborhood, Uh, socioeconomic status, social uh, factors, they would find that what influences our culture and the different quads, if you will, of culture that we Mm -hmm. have, because there's so many different cultures. Like I told you about the the freight culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, I watched that program until the end because mm-hmm. I was just so interested. And, and my theory behind the freight culture is, it's another form of addiction.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and I mean that physically and uh, spiritually. Sure. And let, let me explain to you what I mean by physically first. It is the obvious, the fumes from the paint. hmm the fumes from the paint. The people often re- report a euphoric, euphoric feel, feeling, to incessantly paint and paint on and on and on and on and on, and they'll go out and get ladders and get milk crates and, and just make these huge creations. But what the force that's driving them is not only a, a, a spiritual force. But it's a physical force because there's, there's the paint fume and the, the addiction, the addictive qualities of the paint fumes. Mm-hmm. That's my theory behind the freight culture. Uh, now, our other cultures, let's take Louisiana for example. Here we have the Creole culture, we have among, among others, but I, namely the Creole and the Cajun culture, two different mm-hmm. cultures. Okay. And mm-hmm. some the some of the Creoles actually have Indian heritage. So proudly I could say I stand on a land that is rich in culture. It's a melting pot, a gumbo, if you will. You know, <laughs> because and if you don't know what gumbo is, it has chicken, sausage, shrimp. Am I making water? and so here we are, are <laughs> in louisiana we are a rich melting pot of influence here in the state of louisiana for sure
0: does meaningful minds do you you know you talked about some of your international connections can anybody anywhere plug into you guys and seek resources
1: Oh yes, yes. We 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 have a wonderful website that is hosted by a wonderful woman named Jalen. Uh Jalen has our website at uh, meaningful minds. Bless you. MeaningfulMindsUnited.org. So it's meaningfulmindsunited.org. And you can also plug into our Facebook page that has Daily quips and quotes and sometimes quips and quotes from our activities, like our most recent one, which was in September, during the month of September, uh, we had a bubble blast <laughs> and that was for National Recovery Month. Now, it, it was interesting because everybody does balloon blast. everybody, everybody does balloon blasts. They do balloon blasts for funerals. They do balloon blasts, they just for birthday parties. But uh, when we got with our local park center creation, we discovered that the balloons were hazardous to the health of the ducks in the pond. <laughs> so the director said to me, What if you did bubbles? I said, That's a fantastic idea and let me tell you why. The bubble is encased by its surroundings. Mm. Within the bubble, we exist in our recovery form, encapsulated, protected. But the bubble bursts, we disintegrate within society. That's my thought. And I I said the bubble blast was a wonderful idea. We got uh, news media out there. We had different organizations out there. The Oxford House Recovery Living Facility was out there with us. We even had some entrepreneurs that were peers that sold t-shirts that were out there with us. We had a grand time
0: it sounds it and what a i loved your bubble metaphor that i mean yeah what a great metaphor for the resiliency and the power of recovery and for folks in recovery who are building a life that they choose and thriving
1: it's it's the same as when you are trying to establish a heart-to-heart connection with some individual who may be in distress, Uh, Mm -hmm. hence emotional CPR. Just as the human heart needs to be restarted when respiration stops, when uh, the heart stops beating, so does the emotional heart need to be restarted and so we use emotional cpr and i envision the railroad tracks that go around the world they are Mm -hmm. all connected and so are our hearts just as those railroad tracks are connected
0: i think that's beautiful i um i actually just spoke with um Lori Johnson Wade and our and that episode slated to come out in February. So listeners heads up. Um but her her organization just launched this new program and it's based around the South African philosophy of Ubuntu, which is the belief that I am because we are. And just that whole idea that we oh, all yeah. are. Yeah, we're all connected, right? And that's yeah, and that's why we exist, and how we're defined. You know, is by that, our that, connections. That's,
1: that's that's what we need to realize. You know, the president may be in D.C. and uh, I don't know, um, Kelly and Ryan may be in New York, and and we're here in Louisiana, but we still we're still connected. And thank God for the airways that that, that helped to connect us. So if, if, we, if we weren't connected, there would be no communication. And we would all exist as our own entities in our separate spaces here on the earth. But, but, but it's not like that. We have airways, we have we have the airlines, we have the airwaves. We have radio waves, we are connected. And the 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 only way to establish and maintain that connection is to keep the lines of communication open just as you are doing Shannon, by <laughs> communicating with Meaningful Minds of Louisiana and letting the world know what we do here in Louisiana. It's, it's the same as you guys out there, we're, we're just in a different space. But right. one thing I, I want to encourage is that if you want to reach out to Meaningful Minds of Louis, uh, Meaningful Minds United, pardon me, you may do so at any time. Leave us a message on our Facebook page or go on the website and say, go to the Connect, the Contact Us page. Uh, we have wonderful programs for peer specialists to obtain their CEUs or I don't know, y'all might call them CES, but uh, we have programs every month. In fact, our guest speaker coming up this month uh, on February 9th is Oryx Cohen from the National Empowerment Center. He is the uh, CEO of National Empowerment Center and he's gonna be talking about peer respites.
0: Nice. Well, Jennifer, and I think all it's t- one
1: point five C. I think it's one point five CEUs, and you can pay for it on the website.
0: Oh, that's awesome! That, what a great, what a great resource. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today and for talking with me and connecting with me and um, sharing about Meaningful Minds United and how our communities can plug in and continue to connect.
1: Yes, it's been a pleasure. Anytime.
0: All right, listeners, I'm here with Anne-Marie of Texas Tech University Collegiate Recovery Program. Anne-Marie, welcome.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to
0: be here. We're excited to have you, and I'm excited to get, get to know your work a little bit. My, I, I have a special place in my heart for Texas. My whole family's from there, so... Though I live in Kansas, I have a bit of me in Texas still, so pardon me, That's listeners. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, pardon me if I'm a little biased. Um, but Anne-Marie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, I um, am a woman in long-term recovery. Um, I've been in, around, in several waves recovery for, well, since 1986, so I've I've been around a long time in the field. I've worked in the field, um, and I've worked with families, uh, youth, and parents, and um, different types of settings since about 1994. So I've been in the mental health and fa- family field since
0: 1994. Nice. And you said recovery since 1986? Yes. Congrats. Yes. I wanted to give you a proper kudos and shout out for that.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a big deal.
0: Um, well, why don't you talk to me a little more about Texas Tech Recover- or Collegiate Recovery Program. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Uh, the, the Center for Collegiate Recovery Communities at Texas Tech University is uh, one of the first collegiate recovery programs in the nation. And that also started in 1986, coincidentally, by a man uh, named Dr. Carl Anderson, who most people refer to as Dr. A. And what we do is help students um, who are in recovery complete their higher education. And um, we offer undergraduate scholarships and graduate scholarships that assist them financially um, as they make their way through their chosen field, whatever they can pick whatever field they want in the university. And they can also um, get an advanced degree. So we help out with that. Um, one of the things I'm really happy about is that we are connected with a medical school so we can help students become nurses and even doctors if they choose. And so that's something that um, I feel Texas Tech is, you know, really helpful with.
0: Yeah, that's huge. And one an incredible resource, you know, for For those, wherever they are in their, for people, wherever they are in their recovery journey, a college campus can be, can be really triggering and it can be really hard to sustain
2: any sort of recovery, whatever it looks like to you. Yeah, it's just, you know, most of the, um, not, yeah, probably most of the um, festivities that happen on a college campus include alcohol and mm-hmm. and drugs at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Although the drugs are different than they were when I was in around that age, in my early 20s, you know, drugs are still a problem. Prescription drugs tend mm-hmm. to be more of a problem now. Um, and so what we do is help students, first of all, with scholarships. And a lot of students come to our school for scholarships, but what they find Is far more than scholarships. They get Mm -hmm. uh, recovery resources. They have their peers that help them and support them. And we have a very qualified staff that work at the center with our students, um, all of whom have graduate degrees. So, um, and though I'm not a counselor uh, myself, we do have several fully licensed counselors on our team. Uh, We don't do counseling or therapy at the center because we want to be more in a mentor role than a counseling role. And we understand that those roles are very different and they need to stay separate. Um, But in the cases of uh, when some kind of, you know, safety intervention or, discussion or um, escalation needs to be, um, you know, toned down a little bit. We have staff who have the skills to do that.
0: Sounds incredible. Can you talk to me, talk to me a little bit more about that peer program?
2: Yeah, our peers, uh, one of the main things they do is they have Uh, two student organizations. One is called ASAS, the Association of Students About Service. And they do community service um, across, really across that region of our state. They Mm -hmm. do quite a bit of uh, help with the homeless population in Lubbock. And they also do a lot of um, education in schools about addiction and recovery, and and sometimes maybe tell their stories in in student atmospheres, um, in high schools or um, alternative peer groups, or even in other um, classes at the university, so that you know they're really champions of what recovery can do for people. And they just give, you know, for for people who are still in high school, you know, who may be in a home where drugs or alcohol are used, I think they really offer a lot of hope and a lot of just um, talking about what's going on. We always talk about, you know, (laughs) things need to be brought to the surface, and Mm -hmm. so, I think our our students really do that in an engaging way. Um, and when students, when high school students see our students being successful, I think it sets a great example.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, that's the role of a peer, right? That they offer hope that it can be different and that, you know, I'm living proof.
2: Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, they also, you know, day to day help each other in the academic setting. If they need help with homework, um, th- students provide tutoring to other students. Um, and then they just provide that general recovery and social support that's so important mm-hmm. Um to help maintain recovery. Our second student organization works to um, recruit populations that are not fully represented in our program. And so that would be women uh, and people of color um, and people across the gender spectrum. Um, We've been very successful in working toward you know, making our population more diverse. And um, so I think that student organization is called POWER. Um, that's the acronym for it. And it can be seen on our website. And I'm going to put the website in our ch- in the chat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. For and for those listening, that is www.depts.ttu Dot edu backslash hs backslash csa what that such incredible work and that's so i mean it's the work that a lot of communities and organizations are finally doing and it's vital to success and equitable access that i that I know you believe in and I believe in and we at the center believe in. And I think too, within the context of recovery, we know addictions, overdoses, substance use disorders, that all of that affects those minority populations disproportionately. And they don't have the same kind of access to services that some, Non-minority populations do so. So, absolutely. thank you.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's something our director is is passionate about, and I think our whole team is really, you know, working toward this. Um, the other area that we are working on as a recovery community is increasing our um our belief our view our our concept of what recovery is mm,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: so we are not just 12 step based we um we are we let our students um <clears throat> create their own recovery whatever that might be you know we we do like for them to have a good idea of what that is Mm -hmm. And we do encourage them to belong to some kind of a community, uh, recovery community, Mm -hmm. and um, we found that students are so creative in doing that, and that you know we we know the twelve step programs don't work for everyone. Right. Uh, They they do work for most students in our program, but we're also Mm -hmm. open to uh, smart recovery. And uh, Dharma recovery, and some of the others that are out there. So, if we have a student who's particularly interested in a different type of recovery, we encourage them to, you know, implement that in our in our program.
0: Wow, that, I mean, how inclusive! And it just sounds like you all are
2: doing everything right and well. Well, it takes, you know, it takes a uh, it takes a diverse team. And that's mm-hmm. what we have um and you know, although I don't work specifically with the students, I have contact with students. Mm-hmm. Um, I work more in the administrative role, um but you know, I'm very proud to work among our team, so that's awesome, yeah, so
0: Anne Marie, how did you get started there? How did you find your way to Texas Tech?
2: Well, it's kind of a funny story because one Sunday morning, um, my husband put the newspaper in front of me and he said, you need to do this. <laughs> and he pointed to this article. And, and it's not typical of my husband to tell me what to do. Um, and when I read the article, it it was something I was, you know, it it talked about the program and it talked about Dr. A and how the program was started. And I thought, wow, I can get a scholarship for being in recovery. (laughs) And so that, that inspired me to finish my undergraduate degree. And once I finished my undergraduate degree, I got a graduate degree. Both of my degrees are in human development, family studies. And um, so that's how I got started. Um, I was a student, an undergraduate student, and then a graduate student. And then I took a position about 14 years ago Mm -hmm. in the administrative part. And um, I've owned my own business before. And so the administrative part really appeals to me. Um, I owned a florist for eight years in Austin, Texas, Oh, that's so. Cool. Yeah, it was really fun. It's really hard work, though. <laughs> uh, I,
0: I'm glad other people run businesses. I know I'm not geared for that. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, but but that's how I got started at, at the encouragement of my husband, and um, it, it it's funny because I had quite a few um, credits under my belt. So it only took me a year and a half to complete my undergraduate degree. That's awesome. Um, so it was really great. It, it, you know, it, before I knew it, I was finished and decided to go a little bit further. Yeah.
0: Very cool. Um, so jumping jumping back a little bit, you mentioned the, the more outreach-focused peer or the ASAP group. They've kind of reached out across Texas. What does that kind of landscape look like? How, I mean, as far as making connections with other organizations, um, I immediately think well, of RCOs. But
2: yeah, it, it's uh, it varies. It's interesting because it varies every year. Mm-hmm. They have different leadership every year. Um, however, they are heavily involved with the Association of Recovery and Higher Education. And so that's the organization that all of the collegiate recovery communities are part of. Mm-hmm. So they they've done work with they've met up with they've met up with them for conferences, on ski trips. Uh, Sometimes they'll meet up with other schools for football games and um, when we're playing each other, (laughs) um, they've, I can't tell you all the places that they've um, been asked to speak, you know, about recovery. And they also help um, with implementing new recovery programs. So, when a school is interested in starting a program like ours, and there are, I think about 150 across the nation at this point. Um, Like a couple of our students might go with some of our staff to, you know, help the other school understand why it could be useful and help them determine how they may implement something like that in our, in their school. Mm -hmm. Um, Our Program was born through the academic side, which is a little bit unusual. So when Dr. Ray started the program, he wanted recovery professionals to have a degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, At that time, and still in the state of Texas, they don't have to have a degree, but he wanted them to have a college degree. And so he created the academic piece to prepare them to become a licensed chemical dependency counselor. So um, in each school, like some schools, uh, their recovery program is born out of their counseling center. In some schools, it might be their public health School in some schools it might be the school of social work. Mm-hmm. So, um, but our, stu- uh, our but our students have been invited to talk in prisons. They've been invited to talk at other universities. They've been invited to talk at. Um, I mentioned high schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's a place where they wouldn't go if they've yeah. invited. Yeah. So.
0: Wow. That's so, I mean, it, I think especially about high schoolers and what a critical population to be speaking to about these things, you know, about drug use and alcohol use and um, what it has the potential to do in your
2: life. Yeah, and we we have had people come to our program through the prison system.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, they 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 got in recovery in prison, mm-hmm. learned about our program, may have taken some classes while in prison, and then finish up in our program. Um, and many of our um, alumni have gone to manage. Programs like ours at other universities, so that's the other way that our message is spread.
0: Yeah, I love that. I I find that um, such a a tenet of recovery is is giving it back, right? What you know, what you gain, you give back, and I think that's so apparent in any sort of recovery oriented organization is that it's all about pouring back. They provide resources to these folks and they kind of grow them up. And then a lot of them go on to do similar things at different organizations, or maybe they stay with that organization. I just, it's just really beautiful and congruent to me.
2: Yeah. Recovery is about giving back and it's about providing hope, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think our students provide that for so many people um, who may be, um, who may be at a place where they don't have hope, you know. That's uh, I think that's what recovery is all about too. It's about having that hope and giving that hope to others.
0: Yeah, I think one of the best metaphors I've heard is actually a friend of a friend's story, but it really resonates with me. Is that you know, in my act of addiction, everything. Was gray and it was like living in an ashtray, and it was just kind of grungy and hazy, and I it wasn't enjoyable. And then once I found recovery, it was like someone plucked me out of that ashtray, and I could finally see the entire world and all of its, you know my my color perception was wasn't just grayscale; it was all the colors. Yeah,
2: so, yeah, and I think what our uh, one of the things our students learn is to keep learning, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: you know, um, it, it, that it's a, a lifelong journey, that, that education is a lifelong journey. Uh, so many of our students now are getting graduate degrees. And, um, and I think that's going to make, you know, it's going to make the world a better place to have those people in those kind of positions, you know, in whatever field they are. Absolutely. Because addiction is going to be everywhere, you know. So if an engineering, if one of our engineering students is in recovery in the workplace, you know, chances are he's going to run across someone who struggles with, um, with substance use. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, I, I think about, um, not only the changes they make while they're students but the changes that they will make it in their chosen profession the rest of their lives you know and in their own families it it can be a generational thing so
0: oh, it doesn't stop with us yeah you're absolutely right i you know i don't I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but the last I checked, it's like one in five or one in four are directly affected by substance use or in recovery. And, and so if you, if you don't think you're affected by it, you probably just aren't listening or paying attention. <laughs> and, and I, I think about that stigma that um, for folks in recovery still have that still weighs on them. You know, it's, there is, yes that it's some sort, rather than a disease, the stigma is that it's a moral failing and, and that moral failing causes you to be some sort of bum who's ill-equipped. And just to clarify, that's not what I believe. It is a disease and <laughs> folks in recovery are capable of living wonderful, beautiful lives and doing brilliant things. And yeah, you're exactly right. Them being able to be to seek degrees and work their way up and jobs if that's what they want to do. It's helping show the world that, hey, we can show up and we can do good things.
2: Yeah. Our director, it's so funny. One of the things he always says is, uh, and I agree with him. Is that he would put our students up against any students, you know, <laughs> and and ours would ours would come out ours would be better, you know. Um, they ha- typically have a much higher grade point average at graduation um, because they they focus on their schoolwork mm-hmm. um, and they take their schoolwork seriously. They they realize what a a precious gift it is for them Mm -hmm. to go to school. Um, And that's because of our donors, you know, our Mm -hmm. donors, uh, we have over 90 endowments in our program. The majority are scholarship endowments and our, our, our program is run completely on, um, the generosity of our donors. So all of our expenses are paid by donors. It's just, it's so remarkable. And it's not about, it's, it's about the program and it's about the students. Mm-hmm. It's not about the staff or it's not about the founder. It's, you know, it may have started that way, but, uh, it's the program and the students that make it, um, really what it is today. And I also wanted to mention that um, this past academic year, we have implemented a track for recovery from mental health compromises. So in addition, and that will be a completely separate track um, from the students in substance use recovery. It'll be mental health recovery And we have at least 30 students uh, involved in that so far. And that's so that's kind of our next step is to grow that area of the program and to, you know, uh, determine what those students need um, to help them, you know, complete their degrees. Because I didn't I didn't ever want to believe this because I didn't go to high school right out of... I didn't go to college right out of high school. Mm -hmm. Um, But a college degree is a critical component of wellness in life. You know, Mm -hmm. it helps financially. It helps with your Mm self-esteem. It helps with the people you hang around with. And so um, our next sort of venture is uh, creating this track for people with mental health compromises.
0: That's incredible. Again, I, I know the listeners can't see me, but I've just been sitting here nodding almost violently because that's so awesome. I'm glad that that kind of work is being done and you all have the resources to do that. It's very, very needed. Well, Anne-Marie, we are coming to the end, Um, but before I cut anyone off or shut this thing down, I always like to ask, you know, is there anything you want to plug for your organization? Um, How can people connect with you or the program?
2: Well, I think probably the easiest way is through our website. Um, And if you just... If you just Google Collegiate Recovery, Texas Tech's program will come up. And so uh, that's another way to find us. And I also want to just let people know that there are other programs all across the country, uh, you know, it, that, that they can lo- look at when they're considering trying to figure out where to go to school and recovery. Um, there's the Association of Recovery in Higher Education, A R H E. And uh, that's another good resource where students, where parents or um, students, potential students can look and see what, um, you know, if there's a school in their area. So, um, but they can reach us through our website. Um, I'm pretty easy to find um, <laughs> with my name, <laughs> with my name. I'm pretty easy to find. Um, we do have a conference coming up. Um, it's going to be March 31st and April 1st of this year. And it's primarily for um counselors and people who work, you know, in the field of recovery, the name of the conference is the the Conference on Addiction Recovery and Families. So that's one thing that's coming up. If people are interested in coming, that can also be found on our website.
0: Very nice. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you so much for everything you do for this world. And thank you for having a conversation with me today about it.
2: Well, it's something I love to talk about, and I'm just so happy to share this with everybody out there. And um, I just want to remind everybody that recovery is about hope, and it's about giving others hope. And so thank you for having me. Absolutely.
0: Rebecca, thank you so much for being here and thank you for representing Springs Recovery Center. Uh, For the folks at home, do you want to share a little bit about yourself and your organization?
3: Thank you, thank you, Shannon, and thanks for inviting me to join you on the podcast today. Yeah, my name is Rebecca Berg, and I'm a woman in long term recovery. And what that means to me is that I work for an amazing organization in Colorado Springs called Springs Recovery Connection. We we came to fruition in 2013, and just to give you a little bit of background on the agency, um, our founder um, was looking for resources in our community. Um, for for a family member who was struggling with substance use disorder and there were resources they were here they were there they were here they were there they were Siloed, no one worked together. There wasn't really an agency where people could just come and get resources for recovery. And um, she's a woman in long-term recovery as well, and made a decision at that point that that would be her mission was to create a center where people could come and get resources and you know peer coaching and support to start the journey in recovery. So I'm really grateful that that's the sort of our um, our playbook from the beginning, mm-hmm. and it was easy for me to get on board with that mission. So my actual title at Springs Recovery Connection is Director of Resource Development and Communications. So um, the big joke there for me is that when I was out there hustling mm-hmm. people for money, for one reason, I can utilize those skills here <laughs> <laughs> and ask people for money for a different reason. So, you know, not everything is wasted in this world. and. Oh, yeah. um, Uh, it's, it's much easier for me to be transparent and talk about recovery than some of the things I used to do, but it's it's good. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm still here and I'm grateful that I have an opportunity to use my experience, strength and hope to work with people in recovery. So that's kind of my background. The agency is, you know, about mm, 24, 25 staff members strong at this point. Um, we, uh, our budget, just if, in case someone is listening to this from an RCO, we went from absolutely nothing to about one and a half million is our budget now. Wow. Um, we have, yeah, we pay people, they get benefits, and it's a really great way for people in recovery to give back, you know, and create a career path. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the Colorado Springs and kind of what's the fe- the recovery field like there? the landscape, yeah,
3: if you will. Yeah. That's, that's a really, really good question. So, you know, it's interesting because I, before I worked for Springs Recovery Connection, I worked in treatment. So I worked in mm-hmm. like a for-profit treatment, environment insurance based and in, in private pay. Sure. And um, the, all the treatment was in Denver. I mean, in Colorado mm-hmm. Springs, if you don't know, the geography is about an hour South. It's a smaller town. It's, it's a, you know, it's, There's a lot of military here. And the people that I worked with in Denver were always like, gosh, we just we don't even know what to do with Colorado Springs. Like we don't know how to reach people. We don't know what to do. And so, you know, we do kind of have the grassroots of military and a small town feel. So um, we all know each other, which is a blessing and a curse. Right. Especially in this in this field. Um, and that has created an opportunity for us to work together because yeah, I, my recovery path is, you know, 12 has been 12 step. And it's funny to me because I know the people who are working in this business, and I know them from the rooms of recovery because that's kind of been the primary. I mean, we're really – obviously, we're focused on multiple paths, and Mm -hmm. it's been great to explore that with people and create the possibility that recovery doesn't have to be one way, but um, it's a small town. So, like I said, blessing and curse. You know them, and Mm -hmm. you know them. So, yeah. (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) So, you talk about Colorado Springs and Denver. What is – how far is your reach? Do you, cause I know there's several rural areas in Colorado and you've got that oh, landscape yeah. too. What's that look yeah, like?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, like everywhere in the country, right? The rural um, pop, the rural communities are the ones that are just so isolated. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, Blessing and curse again, COVID, right? Um, oh yeah, went yeah, yeah. virtual immediately, and so what we found in you know twenty twenty 2020, twenty 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 one is that our services expanded just because of the nature of becoming uh, virtual, and that's been really great when we reach into so. Colorado Springs is El Paso County and just to the west of us is Teller. We do Mm -hmm. some work in Teller County, but, you know, we're training people from Denver. We've got uh, a contract with the Department of Corrections. So we're training inmates in prisons all over the state. Um, And we're we're very well. um, I would I have to say I'm super grateful that the leadership team at our agency supports outreach in the way that they do and public yeah. relations and communication and marketing, because that's my background. So mm-hmm. I feel really supported in that. And I think we've been able to make some huge strides with outreach across the state and probably some nationally too, although that hasn't really been our focus.
0: That's fair. Yeah. I'm always curious because you know one of the focus areas for our center of excellence is RCO capacity building. And so and we get a lot of TA requests around either I want to start an RCO or we just started, how do I do it? And so I'm, you know, going back to what you said earlier, how you all started with nothing and now you're, you know, you've got staff with benefits and a budget over a million dollars. That's mm-hmm. incredible. Can you speak a little more to that growth and what that looked like for you? All? Yeah.
3: Yes. Yes. Well, you know, there's always those, um, really excellent acts, ax- not accidents. I don't want to call it an accident, but it was yeah. sort of something that came to us that, um, you know, since my background is in sales, um, they brought me in to be a fundraiser for the agency and we do a successful fundraising event every year, which actually started before I came in and we're starting to grow that. Um, and, and it's something that I'm asked about a lot. So i I'm not sure that a lot of RCOs and, um, peer organizations are doing this. Mm-hmm. We're developing a whole system for contracts. With behavioral health agencies. So right now we have, um, four, I think it's four outplaced coaches that are contracted coaches out of our agency where there are ones working in, um, uh, medication supported recovery. One's working in a psychiatric hospital, um, we have one who's working in accounts, two that are working in counseling offices, and then we just got a contract to for four full time coaches in a behavioral health company. So, the idea behind that, kind of the 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 underlying you know cause and and um, sort of vision around that, is to get away from grants, right? Like we want to create these revenue streams that sustain our agency that aren't dependent on who's in, necessarily who's in office or. You know, I mean, we are so grateful that there is conversation about the opioid epidemic Mm -hmm. and um, we've certainly benefited from grants and support and that conversation. And we also want to be a sustained agency. So creating these revenue streams has been great. So we'll go out. I meet with people in the public. Here's the services we can offer you guess what? You don't have to manage it. We can supervise the peers. We can offer them the support that they need. We can, you know, provide all the direct and indirect costs and we can place them in your agency for whatever amount that is. So that's been really wonderful. It's worked really well. That's incredible. I'm,
0: I'm selfishly thinking (laughs) we need to connect with Rebecca
3: more and get her to lead some webinars or something. (laughs) Think the quintessential salesperson in recovery. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> we need yeah. more of you. <laughs> oh, man. What, how, uh, um, talk to me a little bit about building those relationships. Do you feel like, you know, I, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, addiction, substance use disorders, substance use challenges, incredibly stigmatized. And um, so, a lot of times we've, you know, just depending where people are at, sometimes building those relationships can be really hard how receptive mm-hmm. was your were your partners are your partners
3: well i can tell you that there's a couple of there's a couple of things that help to create those relationships mm-hmm. so for me as a person who's i mean i have an mba my background is marketing you know for me it's always about maintaining that contact list and regular communication with the contact list. So, I mean that's just nuts and bolts. Like in theory we can talk about the revenue streams and how those contracts work, but the fact of the matter is we have to communicate with the people who support us. Period. Mm-hmm. So, one of the first things I did when I came into the agency was, you know, constant contact. You know, that account was there, it wasn't being utilized and if you're not utilizing constant contact on a regular basis, You lose the contacts, the contact information changes, all the things. So that commitment, and I was a contractor for 90 days, like that's how I came to the agency. I'm obviously full-time now and I have a position, but I Uh came in as a contractor for 90 days. And I said, I'm going to set up this system for you and gather as many emails and contacts as I can for this. And that became the primary voice for our communication about Here's this agency and here's what we're doing. So we could highlight what we're doing. And, you know, not everybody opens the email. You know, I mean, we all get those spams or, you know, it's like, am I really going to read this? But it was really sort of an energetic shift too, like, we're purposeful Mm -hmm. about communicating with you. And then our breakfast. So we, our major fundraiser is a breakfast. Mm -hmm. And if anybody knows the Benevin model, it's a specific model of fundraising, which involves table captains and growing it year over year we don't deviate from the model. We didn't make it up. We're not changing it. We're following the path, which is really interesting for a group of addicts and alcoholics because none of us (laughs) want to follow the path, right? Like we all want to make it, oh, we could do a much better fundraiser if we did it this way. Um, But because we have a CEO that keeps, she's done like 20 or 30 of these. um, She keeps putting us back on the path. We follow this. That has created an opportunity to partner with treatment agencies, local businesses, people who support recovery. Now, I'm always a little nervous about going into what I call enemy territory. And we've we've gotten into a little bit of that recently, which has really created a resolve for us around our recovery messaging. Um, so what I would say is early on, if you're listening to this podcast and you're just starting out, maintain your database and your communication, even if it's just one little note every other week, you know, in a some sort of email, you know, Mailchimp or Constant Contact, or if you have some other sort of way of communicating, even if you go, if you have you know 100 contacts, you can do it through your email. Um, I would recommend that, and then that just communicate with them. I mean, that's half the battle. So sure. that's a really long answer to your question. Obviously, I'm pretty excited about it,
0: and it's <laughs> no, I love it. Coffee, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. No, okay. that's that's good, and I think that I mean I think that's excellent information because. One, we keep hearing it from the field, right? All of our RCOS through TA requests and other events, Um, and yeah, I I do building up that capacity across the nation for RCOS. That's it's so needed, and I Mm -hmm. so I don't. I'll speak on behalf of our our RCOS. I think your long answer was needed, (laughs) we need more of it.
3: Okay, yeah. Thank you. Me too.
0: Yeah, um, what what has it been like? Talk to me a little bit more about that enemy territory. Obviously, you don't have to like name drop mm-hmm. or demonize, mm-hmm. but but uh, what, how do you navigate those conversations? What does
3: that? How does that start? What's that look? like? Right, right, right. Well, it's just so important to know that. I mean, I was just thinking about this this morning. You know, being part of a recovery community organization is to me, I signed on to advocacy when I started working here Mm -hmm. and what that looks like for everyone may be a little bit different. You know, you create your own message, you create your own, whatever, whatever that is for you, you get to create that. That's the beauty of this whole thing. We're like, like, Mm -hmm. like how far do I, how far in deep do I want to go into this, this water? And, um, our agency made a decision to become very visible. You know, we are in the process of buying a building and it's in a residential neighborhood and you can imagine what's happening with that, right? Sure. So last week we had our first public meeting because we have to change a piece it's called a variance. It's not complete change in zoning, but it's a variance. It's a use variance. Uh-huh. And we had the public meeting and you know what we realized, and I don't think that this is neither negative or positive. It just is information, mm-hmm. was that we're kind of in a little bit of a bubble at Springs Recovery Connection. You know, we all have our different programs of recovery, multiple pathways. We mm-hmm. work with agencies that support and need recovery. You know, we're in the hospital. We're in the jails. I mean, we're doing all the things where this just isn't like a secret, right right? People are suffering and they need help. And mm-hmm we go into this residential area and we have the conversation with the neighborhood association Mm -hmm. and um, I could go on for a long time about what happened. It was really challenging. It was really challenging. And so, you know, you sort of weigh it out. Um, It's like, do we belong there? Like, is this a place where it's really going to be supportive to our clients? Because that's what this is about. How do we support as many people as possible in getting on this path when they're ready? We want our doors to be open. And are we going to be scrutinized um, and just, wa- you know, whatever those things could be with, the, is this going to be more of a challenge than, than what we want? And, you know, right now we don't know the answer to that. You know, we're just putting one foot in front of the other. I think the most important thing in that is we don't do recovery alone. We don't do any of these things alone. And what we realized, and this was what was really cool about, and I'm going to call it an opportunity. I mean, it felt Mm -hmm. really painful at the time. Sure. Was that we came back together and said, we don't recover alone. That was one of the first things as an agency. We're not doing this by ourselves. And Mm -hmm. there's a plan, you know, whatever that looks like for you, you know, there is a plan At work here, that we may not know the outcome for, but we're going to move forward with footwork. And if it becomes too challenging, we regroup and have that conversation. So, you know, I I don't really have any specifics on how to become an advocate and change people's minds. I kind of got out of that business when I got into recovery. I got to focus on myself and my own work and my own self care. But at the same time, you know, part of being in an RCO is saying, my name's Rebecca, and I'm a person in long term recovery and this is what it looks like because those people in that meeting thought that substance use disorder looked completely different than me. I can tell you that.
0: I you like know? That. I can only imagine. Yeah.
3: Right? Right? Yeah. So it was really amazing. I don't I don't know what the answer is. I don't know that there's a whatever the end and it was a happy ending. I don't know what the mm-hmm. ending's going to be. But when I look at it through the lens of recovery, where's the opportunity?
0: Yeah. And I I Again, I think it just goes back to, like you said, advocacy and and fighting stigma. It's just part of an ongoing conversation, and yes. and representing and letting people see what recovery can look like.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah. It was an eye opener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, I'm I'm curious.
0: I I love asking people about what kind of legacy they want to leave and is that something you've considered and what does that look like in the context of spring recovery connection and mm. or beyond what does that look like for you?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a leg, a legacy for Springs Recovery Connection, if I was kind of the person doing all that, right? Like I'm not the founder, I'm not the CEO. And that's really, really good for my recovery that I'm not the boss. I'm not the one in charge. You know, like I said, we just take the direction and we go. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say that as an agency, we want people in our communities, surrounding communities to be able to ask for help and know where to get it. And by saying, you know, I'm Rebecca. I'm a woman in long term recovery. Whenever I'm in a a forum representing our agency, or you know, whatever, whatever areas I need to say that, it's really important that people understand that there are faces and voices. There are people who, you know, the person sitting next to you, maybe someone in recovery. So Mm -hmm. I think for us is. I think for, for Springs Recovery Connection, for our, our organization, it's people knowing who we are Uh and being able to come in and ask for help. And there's so many pieces to that. I mean, there's stigma, there's legislation, there's PR, there's, you know, visibility, there's, you know, all of that. But I, I definitely think that, I mean, in my own words, um, I think that would be the legacy is just to know that there's help. And when we say we're in recovery, that opens so many doors, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's so powerful to be able to
0: say that and to, to own that. I think for someone in recovery, do you, do you remember the first time you were, you were public about it or maybe shared it with more than your inner circle, what that moment was like for you?
3: Oh, wow. Well, That is a really good question. The first time I was out about it, I would say that I've been in recovery since 1993. Nice. Um, Congrats. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So it's been a while. And I would say probably after about 10 or 15 years, I was really comfortable saying that. And now it's like, it's not a big deal. I mean, you probably know that too. You're around this. You work in this industry. It's not that big of a deal. I think, and I feel like this is really important um, that again, it's like wading into the water. Like, how far do you want to go and how much do you want to share? And constantly kind of checking that mm-hmm. with myself. And it, it's not always easy. Like, I'm not always sure who I'm communicating with and what their background is. You know, there's again, like you said, so much stigma and so much misunderstanding. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if someone had an abusive alcoholic parent, then they've got their whole idea of what that is. And, mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, I don't remember the moment that I kind of was publicly out about this. Um, but I do know that it's evolved over time and I'm giving myself permission for it to evolve over time. And in our agency, nobody has to say anything, you know, like it's, it's Mm -hmm. their choice. And I think that's really important that it's also not that rigidity, like, well, you're here and you have to do this. Cause then it's like, well, that's not recovery. Yeah. So. Yeah, and
0: with, I mean, so much about addiction is stripping people of their agency, right? That's that's such the MO of the disease. And so I, the other end of that, the recovery piece, is giving back that power to say, no, this is who I am, and this is who I choose to be.
3: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. completely agree. Yeah. Thank you for saying that the power of choice.
0: Yeah. yeah. So simple but something we often either take for granted or undervalue.
3: Mhm.
2: Mhm.
3: Yeah. And I think being cautious of where we're doing that in recovery mm-hmm. because I mean, we're a room full of extremists, right? It's either <laughs> one way or it's the other way and like the mm-hmm. whole struggle is staying in the middle. And, you know, the only way I can get that kind of that middle ground where I'm not so rigid about everything is to stick with people in recovery and have those conver- those hard conversations like this is yeah. what I'm thinking. What do you think? You know, the peer participatory process its one of our favorite things to talk about at our agency. How are we going to bring everyone in to talk about this?
0: Yeah, I love that. Well, we're nearing the end of our time. Is there anything else you'd like to share either about yourself or spring
3: recovery connection? Oh, um, you know, I've just loved this opportunity. Thank you. I'm glad that, yeah. you know, everything kind of synchronized so we could do this. And, um, you yeah. know, it's important. It's important work. And I think what I would say to people who listen to this podcast is just keep going. And it doesn't have to be everything and it doesn't have to be nothing. It could be that place in the middle where we're taking one small step in the direction of serving people who need this, who need this or who, and who want this actually. Right. So, yeah. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much, Rebecca.
3: You're welcome, Shannon. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for connecting
0: with us listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, PeerRecoveryNow.org. That's PeerRecoveryNow.org or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.